Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. Here at Evolution Recruitment NHS, we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to build trust and develop deep relationships with individuals to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by creating and sharing insight into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I'm Katia and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. So welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. Thank you for joining me to discuss the future of electronic patient records. So before we delve into the topic, we should start with some introductions. So Ravinda, do you want to introduce yourself? Thank you. I'm Ravinda Kortha-Hotatanzi and I'm the Digital Portfolio Director for Dudley Group Foundation. Perfect. Tanya? Thanks. My name's Tanya Pankhurst. Um, I'm a kidney doctor at University Hospitals Birmingham and half of my time um, is in the design of the electronic patient records that we build there. So I'm the CCIO at UHB. Amazing. Thank you. So now that we are introduced, um, as usual, I will ask each of you to pose your question to, to one another. So I'll start with you, Tanya. If you could kick us off, what is your question? And if you could just have a little bit of context around it, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, so um, I'm really interested in how we build electronic um, clinical records. Um, and I'm lucky because I work in an organisation where we build a, a record for the hospital. Um, so um, we're, we're sort of like a living lab. Um, so I'm very interested in talking to people about what the crucial aspects of an electronic um, clinical record are um, and how we make it those records acceptable to clinicians in that they help them so it makes the record more efficient um, and obviously then I'm very interested in it from the patient side you know what what can we do to make the patient safer whilst not putting such a burden on clinicians um, so that's always my question about EHL. Perfect. Ravinda what are your thoughts? I feel you've answered part of it already when you talked about it being more efficient um, because I think efficiency is key. You don't want an electronic record that's going to make something much harder than it is for people to do on paper and that's only something that's always tossed back at me whenever we're talking about the development of our electronic records and I always get that challenge back, you know, why why would I want to do this if it just makes it much more convoluted when I can just put it on paper and it takes me five seconds. Um, and I think you can't get away from convenience, especially when we're being asked to be much more productive as a system as a whole. And, and I understand that. Um, I think the angle around clinical and patient safety is interesting because at times it feels very subjective depending on which clinician you're talking to. And what that means um, in terms of what are we looking at safety for whom and in which instance you know is it now are we looking you know maybe further down the line um, as we follow that patient through their pathway and is it is it the end impact or are we just looking at the here and now um, and the moment within which we're operating um, the things that from my experience in terms of what people like on an electronic health record or is usability. Um, they are features such as interoperability and being able to see what you want. Um, but conversely, there's also this kind of customization element which then comes into it, which again 
it's, it's really hard when you're designing because again it is very subjective you you do end up being drawn into conversations around how customizable do you want to make an electronic health record versus how standardized do you want to make the information that's available in there especially from a viewing perspective um and i don't i don't know because it's 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 one it's an interesting conversation that we've been grappling with as well around patient safety so you want to make it so that obviously you are able to refer to it and you are able to care for patients much more safer but as you go along that pathway there are some items which become so convoluted um and then you keep adding to it you know so you'll you'll work through clinician by clinician and speciality by speciality and and everything will be you kind of get to a point where everything is an exception everything is so special that it must be included and everything is an exception um and I feel you're right. I completely <laughs> agree with that. And I think that you're um, putting um, customization against standardization um, is a really that that's that's a really clear way of representing the problem of um, design of records because you can't be all things to all people. And I think that you have to have a standard set of things that you're really trying to achieve. So, for example, if you're trying to achieve patient safety, then I think you need to. Um, not you, sorry, we as a group need to um, have in our minds um, that that patient is, isn't is just going to be in your specialty in front of you. Um, they're going to go to the emergency department sometimes. They're probably going to go and see other specialists. And patients who are complicated, who've got lots of different things wrong with them or um, accessing lots of different services are the very people where safety falls down. Not only that, I think that the other thing about standardization of records is that it's not just your organization that you're dealing with, right? Because uh, my patients will come to your organization and go to their GPs and sometimes even go to holiday, on holiday to Somerset. Um, and when we start to really be able to send data properly around the system so that the patient can turn up anywhere, and this is where it's really crucial to have standardization. And I, I, lo I love the way that you've talked about that because I know that clinicians like you, um, like you're saying, um, will come to you and say, yeah, but I don't I don't want it to behave like that. I want to specifically be able to do this for me now, right now. Um, and when you sort of say, yeah, but that's not going to work when the patient turns up in ED, um, that's, that's a really, really important point. Um, I also think that clinicians, you know, um, of course, we all want things to work perfectly in our in our clinic, and clinicians don't see the overall picture. And one of the things that um, your job and my job is to kind of see the overall picture and try and safeguard the whole journey. Um, so when clinicians tell you they want their own special EPR and they want it from this particular provider, and then they, they don't sort of take into account the enormous overhead of the integration if you're going to do that in any kind of a safe way. Um, so I don't know what you think about things. Or I'd be really interested in your views on this, but I tend to much more now towards monolithic EPRs where everything's all in one place and there is a set of standards. Um, and I'd also be really interested in what you think about there being sort of national standards. I mean, the National Programme for IT was such a scary failure um, that then that I think sometimes, you know, nationally people are worried about being too dictatorial. Um, but I think actually 
now that we're coming so joined up, we do need to go back to this idea of us all working to a set of standards so that we can push the data around the system. What do you think? Yeah. So um, on your on your first point, I agree that I think if you if you try to, I partially agree. So I think if you try to go towards one record, I think that that's always the aim. However, you can see there are some really clear examples sometimes of where that's not always possible. And there are services that, you know, um, where you can see the need for actually them needing to have something which is very bespoke. Um, and I think in that instance, what you what we want to get out of that is being able to at least be able to get the data that we need into our main EPR so that you're still having that joined up kind of data available um, because sometimes it's just not possible. And sometimes, you know, there's, there's also other factors such as how interoperable something is, how complex it is and whether financially we can we can make that happen. That's true. And I think sometimes that you um, um, there's quite a lot of detail that you don't need to be interoperable about. So you can be practical about it. What would be your examples of ones where you wouldn't be so worried about people having their own sort of little mini PR off on the side? Maybe the ones that we recently come across are things like ophthalmology or GU medicine. You know, um, you can really see why why they why they would. Um, and there's a lot of complexity involved sometimes in trying to replicate that in an electronic health record, which sometimes you don't need to because again, you don't need all of the detail around it. You need you need some bits of that, but not all of it. Um, if, yeah, I if... agree with you about ophthalmology. Definitely, I think that's a really good example. GU medicine, I'm a bit more worried about that one because especially when you come to in, um, drug interactions, you know, for example, HIV drugs are so complicated and they interact. It's always been a sort of side one because of the sort of privacy about it. Um, but it's quite interesting because I've been working quite closely with our HIV service and they're quite worried about this sort of persisting idea that GU medicine could be kind of separated off. Um, and they think it stokes the fires if we say, oh, yeah, OK, we, we understand this is private because they say, why should it be private? You're kind of making it um, a, a worse taboo than it needs to be. <laughs> and then and then you've got this horrible interacting medicines problem that if somebody doesn't know you're on this bunch of medicines because you've kind of kept them secret and then I just start you on a load of stuff that I didn't know about. It's, it's a problem. I guess that comes but I guess that comes down to again the elements that you need to share and the elements that you don't need to share so you don't have to make all of it available but there are bits that you would want such as medication for instance and what's been prescribed and, um, and that's fine and you can do that you know that there, there are ways to get around that so I think I think sometimes we we become really kind of focused on just making sure that it's that we're getting everything that sometimes we lose perspective of what is it that we actually need and sometimes it takes us down a rabbit hole and I think sometimes we just got to step back a little bit it, it would be great you know it would probably be a digital utopia if we could get to that point where everything was in one place but we do sometimes I find we need to take a step back and just kind of question logically and rationally what's the purpose of this record and what is it that we genuinely want to share and what are we trying to stop you know from a patient as, you, as we go back to the question from patient safety perspective what is it that we want to stop what are the eventualities that could happen and how do we prevent that through, through what do we want to include um in terms of your second question around standardization i think it's becoming much more of a topic of conversation now as we move towards convergence and convergence, you know, the convergence agenda across organisations and, and the introduction of the minimum digital foundation. 
in terms of what an EPR should have. I feel that's been a long time coming in terms of what, you know, what what are the minimum requirements for an electronic um, health record or electronic patient record. Um, I feel like that's, that's been a bit slow, if I'm being honest, in kind of being defined. I think my worry always about things which are released from the centre is it's fantastic and it's an aspiration, but the funding needs to follow the aspiration. You know, if you want to do it, you have to recognise that there are some organisations which are much more digitally mature and literate than others. And actually, I think yeah, I think that's what the National Programme for IT was trying to get, was everyone to a baseline, but with no real understanding of how that would work financially and how much real investment was required in order to get to that point. Um, I think sometimes there's also a real lack of understanding of the technical skills and abilities that you need in order to get there. I think hindsight is always brilliant, isn't it? Because I think what probably should have started off was just a set of interoperability criteria. <laughs> and then I think that would have made our life a lot easier in terms of how how we converge, you know, data certainly across records and how we, we share that. And I think that's always been an issue for the NHS. And I think even more so because we know that a lot of organisations are on very old legacy systems, which don't work well with other systems. But again, that's because there, there was no real standard that was provided at, at that time. So now you're kind of stuck with some of these very, very old systems that people would like to replace and you would like try to get out dates, you know, data from or, you know, it's going to take time for you to be able to encompass and make that available in your record and to replicate um, how you can provide that. And I think this is sometimes a bit that's not very well thought out around it's it's great to have this and everybody in the NHS would like this because it will make everybody's life so much easier in terms of being able to have information, the right information at the point of care. Um, but you need the investment to do it. You know, Completely you need the agree. investment. Of course, you're absolutely right what you're saying. I think um, um, we kind of forget how long ago the National Programme for IT was though. You know, when that was being run, it was kind of surprising to get an email if you lived in Cornwall from somebody who lived in Birmingham. And, you know, now we kind of take loads of it for granted. And I think it it is, we, we, we do have the tools now to um, to really join it up. And I think you're right, If it, you know, it, but you have to put the money in as well to get the workforce right and to understand the sustainability. Because I think the other thing about national funding is often that you get sort of funding for now to buy something with and that doesn't really help because what you actually need is kind of funding for ongoing sustainability. I was just going to make two more contributions to this discussion about um, data. Um, one one is that if you if we do start to be able to um, share data properly with each other um, and get over the issues of people collecting data in slightly different ways. So, you know, the biggest one being, for example, primary care pres pre prescribing being very different from secondary care prescribing. So, you know, the the kind of way that people are working is different. It's then difficult to see how you can, you know, share. It's not impossible, but you'd have to work hard to, to try and sort it out. Um, but if you can get around that, there's two more massive advantages, um, as well as efficiency for clinicians and um, safety for patients. And that would be um, kind of the future, the research. Um, because once we can share huge data sets, then we've suddenly got very big data lakes that we can see patterns in. And it's real world data as well. It's not just sort of 
nicely curated research data. It's actually really messy, you know, what everybody's kind of pushing into the record every day. And I think that's really contributory in terms of future um, care for, for patients. The other thing is kind of related to patient safety is um, the ability to design really good clinical decision support within systems, because um, there's lots of things about just having your data electronic means that, you know, I can access it from home um, when I'm on call. Um, I can see things that people have written, you know, two, two minutes before and all that kind of stuff, and I can read their writing. <laughs> but um, this idea of complex clinical decision support is where I think it really starts to leverage patient safety. Um, and if we can share the data, because it's all very well me having beautiful clinical decision support in my system, but if I don't know that your patient is diabetic and I don't know what drugs they're on, then of course the clinical decision support can't work properly. Um, so I think that those kind of aspects of standardization over, what did you say, um, customization, um, is um, that they kind of contribute to the argument that we should be standardizing things. I also think that you make a really good point about um, um, interoperable systems. I think if you could interoperate everything, then you wouldn't need monolithic EPR, as you say. The trouble is that interoperability is really difficult and monolithic EPR is easier. <laughs> so um, so for me, that's, uh, that's where I'm coming from in our very, very big organisation. And obviously, once you start to link the organisations together and you've got this kind of economy of scale, then you start to get this really... Um, you leverage this really um, um, good good safety aspect um, as well as well as the data. Uh, and I think it, I think it's just a, a point, isn't it? Around it's it's all well and good in terms of trying to look at standardisation and trying to put some parameters against that. You know, it's, it's a bit late. It's after the horse's bolted. You know, people have already started on their way, and some of them are very very much so advanced in terms of what what they have. Um, but it is that long-term planning. It is that foresight, you know, to think about what's happening in five, ten years from now, and how do we design to make sure that it's not only sustainable but that it's still relevant. And unfortunately, sometimes you're just not able to do that because what you're being given is maybe, you know, a, a few million pounds to go and do something right here, right now, with a very narrow brief, and you can have this. And if you don't spend it, you're never going to get this again. And it's it's very frustrating to be in that position because you know that's great and some people do something brilliant with that but sometimes true innovation and something which is truly going to last it takes time you know it takes time for you to sort through that work through the consequences of what that means understand what that means for patients and clinicians alike and then think about what is that going to look like in five years time you know is it worth us putting this together because will it just be obsolete in five years time and I feel as though that's that's where we're going wrong sometimes and I, and I don't say us as in the people who are working in this industry but I mean us as in the government in terms of the way that they're planning um for some of these things um and and just I, the way I, that I, 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 down. I totally agree with you about that I, it, it's a monumental waste of money this kind of short-termism like give you a whole load of money that you've got to spend within three months I mean what a nonsense because you know all of us have a, a wish list, but to kind of 
mock it up in three months and be in a position to spend it is ridiculous and it does just end up with you wasting money because you end up you know kind of trying desperately to sort of think up okay so you know what's our next project okay we'll buy a whole load of kit or we'll do something with it and then just hope that that is the kind of the right thing when we get there which is just ludicrous but and I can't I can't agree with you more about that that last point that you've made I think um, I mean, I'm involved in some collaborations with research collaborations to um, try and address that short termism and um, to kind of create, um, you know, sort of laboratories where you can have a look at design and so on and then sort of practice in simulated things because then you can start to see you know, because in these very, very complex systems, when you've got clinical decision support, you've often got lots of unintended or unknown consequences, right? And we all know that we build stuff in thinking it's a wonderful idea. And then, hey, presto, oh my goodness, we didn't know that that was going to happen. And you're kind of trying to desperately kind of backtrack or, you know, and that's partly because, well, like you say, you're constantly constrained by the fact that you can't really do an invested thing. And it's because because the, the, the it's, you know, the government, is sort of run on such a short-term basis, isn't it? And people are kind of really rapidly trying to point score and say, look, this is a brilliant thing that we've delivered in five minutes, you know, in terms of the political kind of agenda rather than, as you say, the long-term investment. And I think in the technology industries as well, we're in a really interesting time because it's been so um, ex explosive and, and um, such a lot has changed. We're, we're kind of um, now starting to really learn you know what how how technology changes and how you can start to think about um future proofing it because i think that there has been up to now a bit of a um a way of kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater you know oh we'll just throw all this away and go with the latest tech but if you look at the most successful tech it's been built on the back of the previous one and so slowly you know modifying to to get to something that actually works and I think we've got to stop just going after the latest new shiny toy and start doing exactly what you've said, um, Ravinda, and really thinking about where we where we are going to be in, in five years. And I think these big research programs, which are now, to be fair, getting funded by the, um, you know, by the big grant bodies, because that's how research has always sort of been, hasn't it, looking at, at the future. Um, and, that, and they're now investing in, you know, clinical decision support programs and algorithms and so on that... Um, will future-proof it. So I think that's probably the way forward and I, I absolutely agree with what you said. So, so there you go, Katja. And I think I think iterative development really helps us in terms of selling gear, especially to clinicians, because you can see how that's coming across, you know, and they can see how it's being developed and especially if you're doing it in, a, in an agile way and they can be there and they can be involved in it and they can have an input into it. I think that plays a huge part in how, you know, accepted whatever it is that you're developing but in this instance an electronic clinical record is how well that's that's accepted and adopted um and then implemented you know that's really crucial and i think for me personally i think having having that is very crucial so having clinicians who are not only invested in it but who are helping to design it you know is is really really important and and for them to be able to see that kind of iterative development over time um and to see that actually maybe you're not going to get everything in the first go you know that might not be possible but there is a plan and you can see that the plans to develop and and with each step you're kind of growing more in confidence as well because it will be developed you'll use it you know hopefully it works um you really like it and then then you're more invested in the next part 
yeah, clinical and end user design is so important. So if you're doing a patient facing portal, you've got to have the patients in there because they'll tell you all sorts of things that you never thought of. And clinician um, design EPR is so crucial to it being acceptable to clinicians. And we're really lucky at UHB because we've, because we've designed our own EPR, all the clinicians are involved and we get this constant sort of feedback um, of, you know, from everybody who works in the trust. Um, and that's, you know, obviously, like you say, makes for a really useful um, product that people like because because they designed it themselves. So, yeah, I completely agree. Brilliant. That, I mean, that was great. I'm, I'm sure that you both took a lot away from from that. It, that was fantastic. Um, OK, so Ravinda, we'll, we'll, we'll just jump straight into your question then, please. Yeah. So um, my question is interesting because I keep seeing this time and time again. And I think it's one of the things that I... I do struggle with notwithstanding the things that we talked about in terms of data but and it's certainly something that i get asked by friends and family you know especially with the job that i do um, and the question my question is what are the biggest challenges in providing patients with timely access to their electronic health information go for it Tanya. yeah, yeah so um so first of all I, you know i think just for the record, I'd want to say that I think that all patients should be allowed to see um, all of their data um, unless it's going to harm them. Okay, that and that's the only reason why I think that you shouldn't um, that you should be careful with what you're showing patients. Otherwise, you'd never put your money in a bank, would you? And then expect the bank to say, "Oh, we're not telling you how much money you've got in your bank." <laughs> or, you know that that would be really weird, and we'd all be really cross. But somehow we. Think that's perfectly okay with health data thankfully i mean that's really changed over the last 10 years right i mean when i was a very young doctor we were really paternalistic and you know i don't know why we thought that patients being able to join in might i mean i don't know they, they might tell you things that you maybe didn't know or you were not confident enough to share but anyway that is changing so that's really good and um, we've got a patient facing portal that we build at uhb and um the um i'm not the a principal doctor who's been involved in that. That's a guy called James Ferguson. Um, and he's um, he's spent a lot of years doing this and been involved with a big patient group. Um, and the, what, the, um, what the patients say is things like they don't want to find out that they've got cancer by some scan um, without a doctor there to help them through that diagnosis. And certainly neither would I. <laughs> I'd want to know, all right, well, what does that mean? And what's the treatment and all the rest of it? And I want to know right now. I don't want to wait two weeks in scared because I've found out something. So there are some certain things that you need to be careful that you're exposing. Um, but, um, um, and, and the other thing that patients say and don't like is in, in unexplained data. So if you start showing them things which are out of range, but actually, that's not too badly out of range and a doctor wouldn't be worried about it. Then you need to put some context around what that actually means and whether to raise the alarm or not. What's really, really helpful for, for, for me in my practice is that having exposed all the data. So, for example, I look after lots and lots of patients with renal transplants and people with renal transplants have been through a big journey and they know a lot about their conditions and what things you know should look like and what they shouldn't look like. Um, I'm trying to check, you know, um, 15 patients' <laughs> results after a clinic. If you're the patient, you're only trying to check one. And quite often the patients will see the results first and they will come back to me and say, I'm happy with this. 
Um, but that's really helpful. That's a collaboration between me and the patient about how we're looking after them. Um, and if they get in touch with me quickly, then often we can deal with things quicker than if you were waiting for me to get to the end of the day to finish this conversation with you and then go back and check my results from this morning's clinic, for example. Um, so, um, so what gets in the way of timely data? Well, rubbish systems that don't expose the data quick enough. That's the first thing. Um, things where you put in too many checks, you know, and hold data back before um, consultants, you know, or doctors and nurses have to release it. Um, lots of those aren't necessary. You have to be careful that they, you know, what you're doing. Um, then there's some big barriers to um, patients being able to access their data, like they don't have a computer, they don't have the money, they don't understand how to do computery type things. Um, a lot of that's changing, obviously. I think I saw somewhere on the um, in a service station um, that there were that there's actually more mobile phones. People have more access to mobile phones than they have to toilets across the world. So actually, mobile phone access is now um, very very widespread, and we need to make sure that the patient portals are accessible via the technology that people hold. I think that's really important. And then I think another thing is language barriers. And language barriers are actually very difficult when you're building patient portals because translations aren't very good, um, especially in medical terms and legal things, you know, are then complicated because if you get your language wrong and you start giving people the wrong information, it starts getting dangerous. Um, and often licensing for um, technologies you know, doesn't include translation of medical terms into multiple languages. So that remains difficult. I'm sure we'll get there with that technology, but I just don't think the technology is quite there with that bit yet. So we end up with most things in, in English and then, um, you know, maybe linking out to leaflets that have been carefully translated, but actually translating in real time letters and so on from consultants. I think that that still remains really complicated. Um, the, 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 um, the way to get around some of that is to have, um, I think, this idea that you that you can reach hard to reach groups by having group leaders. So, for example, uh, you know, fund, government funding has has reduced all of these kind of services. But where you have women's groups, you know, um, support groups for um, people with learning disabilities and so on in the community, you can often um, have them help. For people to be able to get into their own portals and patient records and so on and provided they're with trusted people who you know the the um the citizens or patients um aren't going to be exploited by them those are ways to um get around digital poverty um for, for hard to reach groups yeah and I, I speak from experience someone who comes from an ethnic minority background and having a mom who for whom english is not a first language you know and um i remember being younger and having to translate things for my mom and having to go with appointments you know with her to appointments and then having to then subsequently translate back what was happening and i think that that was kind of considered normal and, and i was very lucky where i was from that actually um my mum's main doctor was also of the same community and religion that we were and so therefore he understood the need to be able to explain things to her in her native language and was able to do so as well because he could speak it and i think it's sad because that was in the i'm an 80s child so that was in the 90s <laughs> and it's now 2023 and i think it's sad that actually that that still 
you know, appears to be a barrier for patients to be able to access their basic health information. Because for me, that broadens the gap between health inequalities for people, especially in certain groups, you know, just not being able to understand what is happening and then being able to translate that feels very difficult. And I think especially when you look at some marginalised groups where, as you said, they're at risk of not being able to what I think I think there's lots of factors and I think especially if you're in marginalised groups, one, poverty, yes, definitely. You know, if you don't have access to those tools then it's then it's very, very difficult. Um and if you're not particularly digitally literate, that's another issue. And I think sometimes we're trying to push digital and we have to understand that digital is an option. It's not the only option that's available. It is one of a range. Um and then I think sometimes for groups it's very hard because actually you don't know what you don't know. I work in the NHS and I still find it incredibly complex sometimes to navigate myself around as a patient, you know, um, especially if I'm in an unfamiliar area and, and I need something and, and I don't know what who I can go to to get that information. Um, and I can't imagine what it must be like if actually, you know, you you don't understand the language fully and you don't have that knowledge about how the NHS works and you are just a patient trying to navigate your way through with all of these barriers and then you kind of get to the end of it and you don't have access to your own data and so you have absolutely no idea what's going on. I imagine that must be quite frightening as a patient. I agree. Um, So I think that technology has started to really help us in some ways though. So Having translators in clinic, for example, was often, I don't speak any other languages, <laughs> unlike you, I'm not that skilled. Um, so, um, but, and having translators in clinic was often difficult, not least because translators would turn up um, at a different time for the clinic appointment or the clinic was running late, the translator had left and all this kind of stuff. Now we've got a very, because of technology, we've got a very good telephone service and it's brilliant actually that I can access many, many like more than a hundred languages and I can then and there access them on demand. And that's really revolutionized the clinic because the, I can put the phone on speakerphone and the phones work properly now, by the way, that's another thing that's changed in the last 10 years. And we can have a three-way conversation. And often, you know, as you say, you, you know, your mum would then be able to speak to me properly about what she really wanted to talk about. Um, so that's really helpful. The other thing that I think has revolutionized things to a certain extent, or, you know, the, the language, being in English aside, as we've already said, um, because patients are now can have their um, own patient portals. Often, people like your mum and, and my dad, who's a, who's elderly. He's he's English speaking, but he's elderly and doesn't really want to um, interact with computers. But they will um, have they will set up patient portals because they know that their daughters um, will help them in your mum's case and my dad's case. Now, that means that, I mean, obviously, they can share their credentials with trusted individuals. That's perfectly legitimate. You're allowed to share your credentials with whatever, whoever you like. So then we can help them. And often that means that there's access to a lot more information. And then, you know, I'll often now in clinics see patients coming with a list of questions, actually in English, that their daughter or their son has written out for me. And they'll just give me that. And then via the translator, we can go through all the questions. Um. Finally, the only other thing I was going to contribute on this is that on the in the patient portal that's been developed at UHB, there's an ability to record um, the conversation if it's remote. So if you're on a video com- consultation remotely on uh, My Health, you can record it. 
um, and we send the recording. It's not the, not the video part of the recording, just the audio part of the recording we send um, to the patients afterwards and they can download it. Now that means that obviously they can then replay it with family members if they didn't quite understand exactly what was going on. And also in that patient portal, there's an ability to um, uh, take notes and things beforehand. So again, you can write your list of questions um, before so that you can prepare and then you can come in to the consultation and both the, the clinician and the patient can see what what's going on. Um, so those kind of tools, although they don't exactly get around the language barrier, and as as I say, I think that we're we're really waiting for um, the translation tools to come up to spec, but those are helping in the meantime. In terms of the translation tools, actually, I do on ward rounds sometimes. I mean, I, I did this with a um, Cantonese speaking um, chap the other day, and he was speaking into his phone, and we were using Google Translate. But it wasn't brilliant and some of the stuff it comes up with is just kind of bonkers and you have to sort of try a different way um, and both of us look bemused at each other when we read the translation and think that isn't possibly vaguely what you've said but um yeah i think we'll get there with those in the end yeah i think it's great that you have that you have that patient portal i think there's still huge areas of the country where that isn't possible and still millions and millions of people who don't have access to that and i think as we advance and we all know the pressures that we're facing you know on our on our systems and that our colleagues are facing in terms of trying to just um being able to administer patients and look after them and think about things such as patient safety and just the volumes that we're trying to deal with at the moment i do i think it just goes back to that point that when you do have patients who are much more educated about their health um, who do understand um, it's a lot more and understand the options which are available to them we we do find that actually we do have patients who then end up with better health outcomes because they're much more knowledgeable and much more invested um, in their own well-being and I think that that's that's you know where we need to get to that that's looking at some of the future proofing that we can do yeah 100% absolutely agree with you about that that was so interesting Thank you so much. I mean, was there anything that one of you would like to add before we conclude or? I'd just like to say thank you to Ravindra. It's been a really interesting conversation. I think I might keep her email so that I can <laughs> run things past her every now and again. Thanks. That was great. Yeah. Thank you. So it, was well, that, it was wonderful. And it's really nice because sometimes, you know, especially if one of you is coming from a clinician perspective and someone's coming from an IT perspective, you do sometimes butt heads, you know, there can be a tendency to sometimes just be looking at it you know just from your own perspective and not really taking a holistic view of what's happening um you know and and I think it's nice I think it's really really nice because I think back to like 12 13 years ago when I first started working in the NHS and working in digital and it was a much it, they were just much more different conversations you know you kind of felt like you were forcing digital on people and you were trying to get them interested in going down the digital route um or you had the opposite and you had people who kind of built like access databases at home like in the space time were coming to you with lots of data and lots of patient information and wanting you to do something with it <laughs> you know but you feel like you're having much more informed holistic conversations now about not just what do you want but what does the patient journey look like? You know, what does that mean for them? What is the impact going to be? You know, do do we have the skills and capabilities to be able to do this? And it and it feels just much nicer. It feels just so much more joined up and just a much more rational conversation. Thank you so so much. I cannot thank you enough, and I'm so glad to hear that you will um, move your relationship into where uh, you know the day to day world, which is fantastic. I'm glad that I've been able to put you both in touch. Brilliant. 
I'm sure that everyone listening will have taken a lot away from your discussion today. Um, and I'd just like to thank you again for sharing your views on the future of EPR.